Well, good morning. For those of you who are guests, I want to welcome you. My name is Greg Harris, and senior pastor at All Branch. And we have been um, in the past talking about um, building neighbors and doing that. And so I'm talking to my Olive Branch family here right now. If you are uh, part of this, Easter is on its way, and we are excited about what we're going to be doing here at Easter and what's coming up for Easter. And um, so just as an all call of the congregation, kind of talking to everybody, we've been talking to the staff about this, um, we've given you a couple of tools to help you think about Easter already, and we didn't really realize that until we are talking, and we're like, yeah, we've, we've kind of been setting this up. This is great. And we've been excited to introduce you guys that idea, that map, that neighborhood map. And we just been want to continue to encourage you guys to care about your neighbors, to love on them by just praying for them, looking over that. Maybe there's an opportunity to invite them to Easter coming up. That'd be great. But what we really would love for you to do is to kind of come up with three people, three people in your mind, three people on your heart, three people on your list that you're going to, you are going to invite to Easter this year. You're saying, you know what, I'm not just going to look for opportunities. I'm going to make opportunities. And I want to put these people on my list and be praying for them. I'm going to be diligently looking for that. They may be people in your neighborhood. They may just be people in your life, but this is where we're headed for our Easter season, and I was hoping that we together would do this and just see what God could do in the sense of seeing how many people might actually respond to be able to hear the gospel for the first time in their lives, or maybe after many years of being away, have an opportunity to find a church that they love, they connect with, because they connect with you guys. You guys are awesome. And so I want to give that opportunity this year, this Easter. And so I hope that you join with us as we're moving that. You'll hear more about it as we move forward. But I'm going to cough, and then we're going to pray. So let's, uh, let's do that real quick. <coughs> All right, cough with me now. It's all right, amen. Um, Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we thank you so much for just the things that you've given to us and the opportunities to to reach our neighbors, the opportunity to love on people who, in some cases, God, they feel like there's a distance, but you allow us to bridge the gap with just love and care and being open. At the same time, Lord, we're excited about your resurrection. We're excited about what you've done in conquering death and conquering sin on our behalf. We look forward to being able to celebrate that together as a church. And so build our hearts and build us um, up as we move in that direction. But also, Lord, as we dive now into the book of Colossians, as we begin to examine the concept of spiritual development and growth, pray that you would help us to just uh, take this check, take this opportunity to just challenge ourselves to look deep into our, our own hearts and souls and to really say, God, that it's time to move forward with you. Help us to do that. Pray you'd be present in this room to enable us to grow. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as a kid, I was half a fan of Peter Pan. Anybody a big Peter Pan fan out here? Just throw your hand up real quick. Here's what's crazy. Every time I ask if there's a Peter Pan fan, the majority of them are women. I don't understand this, but men, boys love Peter Pan. When you're a little boy and you really find out who Peter Pan is, it seemed like you should love it. I mean, he's out there fighting pirates, Captain Hook. He's out there engaged with, um, in, I guess, fictitious looking Indian people. And because uh, I don't know what to call that in our modern culture. And uh, so... But, but you got this Peter Pan world of Neverland where kids don't grow up and everybody's engaged with, with these childhood adventures and excitements. And the interesting piece in all this to me was that I, I, I kind of enjoyed the Disney Peter Pan. I mean, he flew around. That was kind of cool. He was a young, puggish kind of kid, you know, kind of. But then I, how many ever saw the musical Peter Pan? Anybody see the musical? Like, it's, uh, I won't grow up, I won't grow up. That whole thing, yeah, obviously I've seen it. Don't. It's a... It's, it's, uh, uh, here's, what I, here's what was interesting to me. I was like, oh, Peter Pan, let's watch this musical. I'm watching it, and some woman in tights comes dancing across the stage. And I'm like, that's not Peter Pan. Peter Pan is not 
wear tights because uh, you know, Peter Pan's not a girl. So it's not Peter Pan. And every time I've ever seen Peter Pan done, they always choose a, a girl to, to do it. And I've begun to figure out why. And that's because you're never going to get a 10-year-old kid, a 10-year-old boy to wear tights. It's just the bottom line. And then my sister was in first service. She pointed at me and said, you would have. I'm like, don't you dare say that. But the... Uh, I have little boys, and you know what I love? What made me excited about Peter Pan was not the Disney version. It wasn't the musical. It was the movie Hook. Anybody like Hook? I loved Hook. Hook was awesome. And what I loved about Hook was it made the boys boys. I mean, they're burping. They're doing all their stuff in front of each other. They're, they're dirty. They haven't showered in their entire life. That's what, what a 10-year-old does when they're a boy. And so they're just these messy little boys. And I'm like, yes, that's awesome. And they haven't grown up. They've been boys forever. And that's the allure of the mythology of Peter Pan. What's interesting, though, is that Peter Pan has been adopted as a as kind of the head figure of a situation that many sociologists and many people have seen in the United States called the Peter Pan Syndrome. Anybody heard of this? It's called delayed adolescence. The idea that, a, that you can stay a kid longer and longer and longer, like now into your 30s, you can remain in adolescence or something like that. And they continue to make up reasons why that's true. Your brain doesn't develop until you're 25. Well, it's not totally, you're not ready for this engagement until you're 30. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. It's weird. Maybe we should move the age of accountability up to 30 or something like that spiritually so you can go to heaven automatically. But the idea behind all of this is Peter Pan syndrome it creates an inability for men and women to grow up. You can call it failure to launch, you can call it all things. Some of the illustrations out there on the kind of pop psychology sites is that it, it sponsor, it's seen in this laziness of not willing to get to work. That you're sitting there and you're waiting for that job to fall in your lap. You're, you're, you're going for the long shot. You're going to become a huge, you know, photo artist. You're going to be a great um, internet art a star. Or, you know, eventually they're going to want me for the CEO position. Why would I take the janitorial position? You know, that kind of thinking, even though they're not engaged in the actual hunting for a work, hunting for a job, they're waiting for the jobs to come to them. The second one is they're dabblers. You watch their Instagram feeds and they're great at all kinds of things. Man, they're great at guitar and they're awesome at, at this thing over there and they they love to take photos. And you're just like, These, this person really has, but has it down, but they're not an expert at anything. They actually don't have any employable skills that they get moving on. Again, they're just kind of sitting down. Their networks are small. They may have a broad network online, but they don't actually know anybody. They just kind of know their family, and that's about it. They also are just kind of stuck. They seem, to, they seem to always keep their options open. You may know somebody like this. You like call them and you say, hey, what are you doing this weekend? And they're like, oh, nothing. We're like, hey, we're having, we're having this thing at our house. Why don't you come on over? It'd be great. And they, this is their answer to you usually like, maybe. Because they're going to keep their options. Maybe something better might show up. You know, you're, that sounds fun, but, you know, you're not on the level of, um, yeah, absolutely. And so they will keep options open. And Peter Pan syndrome has grown into a situation that a lot of people are looking like, what do we do? But I'm not, I don't know how I could handle that when really what we need to handle in the church is a spiritual Peter Pan syndrome that's occurred. There's a sense in the church that's been talking about for over 30 years, at least of my knowledge in, in different literature, about the, the church's dangerous immaturity. 
From a lack of Bible knowledge to the lack of people showing up at prayer groups to the engagement in spiritual disciplines or the knowledge of Scripture, it has become dangerous. In fact, it's been interesting. When I went to Biola, Biola University actually requires everyone on campus to get a minor in Bible. You can't do any degree. You must get a minor in Bible. It was that way when I went there. And you would sit down in your your class at Biola, and it would be your introduction to Bible course. And they would ask you some general questions. They'd be like, okay, everybody heard of the Trinity. And everybody's like, oh, we heard of the Trinity. Well, can somebody give me a definition of the Trinity? And man, I heard more heresy in those next five minutes than, than ever. You, you sat down and they would say, okay, here's Adam and here's a list of characters from the Bible. Put them in order. And people were looking, scratching their heads going like, I don't even know who Ahimelech is. That's weird. And so there's this kind of a lostness and spiritual knowledge and literacy that once filled the church. And the reason I know it filled the church is it's weird. I would walk in the library at Biola. And as I would come to different sections of, of the library, there'd be these black books. And you'd pull these black books off and they had black covers on them and they were bound and they were, had been written by Biola students. It was their different thesis. It was their different information. And, and on the spine, it would tell you who wrote it and what they were writing about. And then at the bottom, it would tell you for what degree that they were going for. And the degree that this, these books were on said Bachelor of Arts. In order to get your bachelor's degree, you had to write a thesis. And then when you went up to the master's level, it was a bigger thesis. It was like a couple of them. When you got to the doctoral, it was a giant old fat book. But I couldn't find a thesis written by a Bachelor of Arts students any point past like 1981. Because somewhere back there, they, they had had enough complaints and they had to dumb down the curriculum. They were too busy having to teach Christians their faith in order for them to get to the level that they could write clearly a, a, a thesis I would sit routinely in Talbot courses that I was scared to death because I'd heard these classes were hard. And professor after professor after professor said, you know, we used to do all the, all the books of the Bible and you had to outline them all, but we've kind of reduced that. We heard, we've gotten too many complaints. People can't keep up with it. There's a spiritual Peter Pan syndrome that's kind of covered the church, and it's not new. It's the danger of people getting so busy or so engaged that they can't, they're not growing. They're not getting past this infant Christian stage. Maybe it's because when you became a Christian, nobody was there to lift you up and move you forward. Maybe it's because when you became a Christian, you switched churches because you thought, hey, they got the cooler lights and drums and stuff. But when you got there, People assume that you were spiritually developed, and so nobody ever led you along or didn't have the, the classes or the development track for you. In some cases, you were offered an opportunity to be a leader before you were ever ready. And so you got stuck hiding behind your leadership, realizing, I've never really learned this stuff. I don't really know what I'm doing. But they said I'm gifted, so I might as well try. And there's a lot of things the churches have done to cause ourselves to be spiritually immature, and the reason I want to point this out isn't because um, spiritual maturity is, is just is, is bad. I don't think it's healthy. It's because it has a very big danger attached to it. And we see that danger in the book of Colossians. So I'm going to invite you guys, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Colossians. This is our kind of introduction to the book, per se. And from this series, we're going to do a few other series from the book of Colossians that kind of pulls it out. And what I want to do is start here in chapter 1, kind of begin to lay things out. If you need a Bible to see Colossians, it's in page 983 in the Bibles on the seats. You can join us and be there in that section. But Colossians is a letter written by a man named Paul, who was a missionary in the ancient world, who had um, done a lot of church planting. He did not plant this church, however. In fact, 
The church he did plant is found in a city, a very large city called Ephesus, and it's on the coast of modern-day Turkey. In that time, it was called Asia Minor. And so Paul had had this giant revival. All of these people who had come to faith in Ephesus started a very large church there. In fact, there was a, a huge movement in which men and women were burning, and from the church were burning and selling, just burning up all of their magical rites and all their um, witchcraft and stuff that they had been engaged with. And in the middle of this revival, people were being trained and discipled. Well, one of those people's name was Epaphras. And now you can imagine, this is a world where you just don't get in a car and drive to the next town to go preach. Epaphras lived in a town that was about 120 miles away from Ephesus. That'd be like, like being in the Mexico border or southern, um, uh, south of San Diego. And he decides, I'm going to bring the message to Corona. This is my hometown. He would have to walk for three and a half days to traverse all of that time to get back to his town. After he'd rested and gotten ready, he began to preach and teach. Now, Colossae is a small town. It's, it's kind of collected in a, a, like a triangle of towns. Um, Colossae is kind of the lower corner. Laodicea, which if you know the book of Revelation, that's one of its side towns. And then the big city that's near it is called Hierapolis, and it's a little bit north. But these three towns make up this area that this book is really written to, this letter. And so... Epaphras, this young evangelist, moves into the town, starts preaching and doing probably miracles and things, and a church begins to grow. They find their way into a larger home called a man named Philemon, who you also know as one of the other letters in the New Testament. And Philemon's home is opened up, and his son Archip—I guess say this right—Archippus. Because in the Greek, it's Archipu. Wouldn't you love to have a pastor named Archipu? You're like, hey, this is my pastor, Archipu. You know, it's like, this fits perfectly. But anyway, Archippus is, is his son. And he kind of pastors the church as the teacher. So we know all this from these letters that Paul has written. And so this church grows. It's in the, roughly the mid-50s and it, to about now when, when Paul's going to write this letter, it's the 60s. It's about eight years old. Some Christians have grown strong. Some of them are stuck what I think is called Neverland. They've, they've just not grown up spiritually at all. They've kind of stuck it out and stayed in the beginning phases. And the danger that occurs then is Epaphras takes off because he sees this problem that's happened, runs to Paul. Actually, he, gets to, he has to go thousands of miles to go to Rome where Paul's imprisoned to tell him about this problem so Paul can write this letter and carry it back to the Colossians because he needs help. A very powerful, very charismatic, itinerant preacher has likely moved into Colossians, has been preaching about how you and I could have ecstatic visions of God. If we would simply put ourselves in the right state, follow the, the, these exact rules, you and I could enter into a state in which we could see the angelic host, we could be in the presence of God right there, and he would empower us with the power to overcome the demonic hordes around us. And he would give you the names and the powers to, to give you the chance to overcome the elemental principles of the world. And this had been very common. This is the, the struggle of their culture was the idea of fate and the demonic world controlling them. They had magic rites and all this stuff dedicated to the knowledge of how to overcome your fate and how to break the chains of the demonic, the demonic hordes. And today we call that magic. And so this man comes in preaching and what happens is they are so infantile in their faith, they don't have the ability or the strength to keep the culture from mixing in to their belief system. It's a lot like the debate over bottled water. Anybody heard of the debate over bottled water? 
that's out there. That the, 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 the debate is whether the chemicals they wash the, uh, the plastic with are, are getting into your purified water or not. Or there's other conversations about whether you leave a bottle of water out in the sun, that the plastic deteriorates and enters into the actual water. And so when you open your bottle of water and it's been in this hot van driving through, driving through Arizona to be delivered to your house or whatever, and you take a sip, you're not drinking water. It's been mixed in with plastic and other chemicals. That's, that's the, now, I don't know if that's true or not necessarily, but let's just use that as a good illustration to what happens in the faith. We think our faith is contained in this solid thing called the confession or, or our beliefs. But the issue is if it's not strong enough, under the right influences, your faith can get mixed in with things that Christians shouldn't be believing, false teachings. And that's exactly what's happened in Colossae. All kinds of new false teachings had entered in to the point that Paul is writing this because he's like, look, guys, we need to get refocused. We need to get centralized on the point of your faith, which is Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, then we're not going to start with the whole arc, the whole conversation the book of Colossians is involved in. But I want to start with the question of are we stuck in Neverland? Have we not developed beyond our spiritual beginnings? so that we are in danger of a mixed faith. And so I want to start with a self-examination this morning. And as we do the self-examination, we're going, to, we're going to ask ourselves if we're in Neverland. And you might be in Neverland if, and this is kind of what we're going to start with, is this question. And this is a chance for you to check yourself and see where you're at. You might be in Neverland if, first and foremost, you like the simple without the depth. In fact, this is a, this is a classic case for many people. Just give me a Bible verse. A bumper sticker theology, they call it. Um, the idea that I don't want to have to read the whole book. Can you just tell me a verse that's really going to help me out? A lot of people pick and pull out a single verse. They memorize the verse, but guess what? The verse doesn't mean that in its context. Sometimes we're using verses way out of their intention. In other cases, we just know these quick little proverbs and we know these quick little things. Or maybe we like a, we love a, we know we memorized our worship song, but we've not really memorizing the scripture because the worship song's catchy. We get that. And I don't have a problem with the simple. What I have a problem with, like, in, in, with a tweet or something like that is if we don't go to the meaning behind. If we don't go into the depth. Creeds are awesome. The creeds of the faith have been great. They're simple. But the reason they've been so great is because they point to such deep truths behind them. And the danger is that we want just the simple things. We want to just be able to say, God is love, and not have to get into what that really means. We want to say, we need God, God is righteous, we want justice, but we don't get into the complexity of how that works. And the dangers we, to these simple things, and Paul saw very simple kind of mottos going on there. In fact, in the opener of his book in Colossians chapter 1, he tells him, look, I know you got a faith. In verse 1, he says, you're, or verse 2, he says, you're the saints, you're the faithful brothers in Christ. Verse 4, he says, I've heard of your faith in, in Jesus Christ, the love that you have for the saints, the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. I, I see all this stuff. Now, verse 10, he moves on, though. He goes, okay, well, here's what I want for you. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will, the spiritual wisdom and understanding, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. If we're into the simple, are you increasing in the knowledge of God? Are you seeing yourself develop, knowing who God is, knowing what he is like, and seeing what he's called you to? Or have we just stopped at the surface? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, points out not, the, one of the biggest dangers he sees in his time, this is in the 1950s and 40s, is people thought the faith was too complex. 
Look at reality, though. The universe is extremely complex. From all of the physics, from all the details that we knew in atomic, in atomic theory, from quantum theory, from all these things, the details of just what makes up a table is ridiculous. Let alone all of the other pieces of this universe that include the morals. So why would we expect our faith to be simple? So simple that it wouldn't explain a complex world. Wouldn't God be just as grand or grander than the universe that he creates? And so what we see is Paul says, no, you need to keep going. You need to be deeper and deeper. In the book of Hebrews, when they're challenging the people away from, challenging the Jewish people not to run back to their Judaism, the author writes this. He says, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Milk was what's fed to you. It's, it's simply hearing the word of God in the scriptures, not, not actually studying it. He says, you're unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Underline those words if you see those somewhere. To distinguish good from evil. This is hard. Constant practice. You know what children don't do? They don't do constant practice. Put a kid down in front of a piano and tell them to practice for an hour, and they're going to be like, I don't want to do this. You know, to practice your soccer skills, practice your baseball. A constant practice is necessary to grow up. And what he's saying is you've got to be constantly practicing the Word of God, which leads me to the next point. One of the, one of the ways you may find that you are in spiritual neverland is if you're not bearing fruit in your faith. Paul, in verse, again, look down at verse 10, he says, I want you to be fully pleased in God, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in his knowledge. Bearing fruit is huge. And some of us aren't bearing fruit. Let's be honest. You are extremely busy doing a lot of spiritual things, but there's no fruit. See, fruit is defined in a couple of places. When you become a brand new Christian, oftentimes you'll find that you are excited about the faith because things are changing in you. You're becoming more loving. You're becoming more patient. You're becoming more kind. You're becoming more joyful. You're becoming more self-controlled. These things are happening where in the past it really wasn't that way. You'd run off and do all kinds of things, and you didn't realize that this development was occurring. But you just stop. You don't see more patience growing in traffic. You see less. You don't see more faithfulness occurring with your family or your spouse or your work or your church. You're ready to skip out, do something else. You don't see more of these spiritual fruits forming. It's just kind of stalled because, honestly, you're busy. Stretch thin, running around, sports and kids and grandkids and, and that workplace and that commuter thing and got to get food and we're just so busy, we don't have time to grow spiritually. And maybe the other problem is that when we don't have an opportunity to actually engage and see fruit in the other sense of seeing the gospel bear fruit. Look up at verse 6 to see how fruit is also used. He speaks that the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing. When it bears fruit, it, make, it brings people to life. They become Christians. When's the last time you got to lead somebody to the Lord? Is a great indicator of whether you're bearing fruit in the midst of what you're doing. So we can be so busy, but we don't understand why we're doing what we're doing. We're not bearing any fruit. The flip, is tr flip side is true, too, for me. I'm not bearing fruit and sometimes in my life when I start realizing, how much more knowledge do I need to pack into my head? You ever gotten caught in that one? You read the Bible, you read the Bible, you memorize scripture, you got down, you got all your theology down. Some of you guys are so stuck, you've got so much knowledge, you're asking yourself, when am I going to start living this thing? How many more sermons do I need to hear about loving my neighbor before I go love my neighbor? 
How many more times do I, do I need to hear I need to give and help people or I need to get baptized or whatever before I'm actually going to do it? And that's dangerous for me as the preacher, right? Sometimes I wonder, should I just preach the same sermon every single week for, for years until we finally all are doing it? Would that be a better discipleship model instead of us just saying like, okay, I preached that, moving on. And we kind of act like we all took an exam at school. We've all been trained this way. The school teaches you to take an exam, cram that knowledge in your brain, take your exam, put it down, got the knowledge, move on. Don't apply. We need to be kind of the people who are applying it, living it out. And we're not going to bear fruit if all we're doing is hearing but not being doers of the word. And the danger is that we find ourselves just taking it in, taking it in. Or maybe it's simply that your sin is just so dominant. You're not bearing sin because you're just continuing, or you're not bearing fruit because you're continuing in sin. You're bearing sin. 1 John chapter 3 says, if it, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He can't keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The point here is that, guys, some of you have adopted into your life sin, and you've just accepted that this is who you are. I'm just, uh, I'm just a sourpuss by nature. No, that's not what the scripture indicates. You're to have the character of Christ. And I don't think Jesus is walking around going, stinking disciples and Pharisees, you know, bugging me. No, that's not Jesus. We've gotten so good at adopting sin into our lives, some people even say, yeah, look, this is just how God made me. And we hear that about a lot of different sins in our world today. But it says very clear, you cannot continue practicing what the Bible defines as sin. Not what we define as sin, because this is the Bible. What it defines as sin, we don't keep practicing that or the seed of God isn't within us. There should be change and transformation. And a lot of change and transformation doesn't exist because we might be in, stuck in Neverland. And we might not be enduring needing the endurance to grow. Look at how Paul puts it. He even prays for them. He says, guys, I've been praying that you would be, verse 11, that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You need endurance in the faith. You know, a lot of us, this is an easy world to live in. You got microwaves. You don't have to leave your house to go shopping anymore. It'll be delivered by Amazon. I mean, we are more dependent on Amazon than we are dependent upon anything else, right? I want to shop. I don't even have to go to the mall. I want to go do something. I don't even have to leave the home. Google answers my questions. Amazon delivers my stuff. This, I could get in a giant chair and float around in space and be like Wally, you know, in, in, in the movie. And what, we hap- what happens to us is we become people who lack endurance, We can't press in. We can't fight forward to grow. You pick up the option to say, I'm going to read my Bible this year. And somewhere down there, you're just like, numbers is hard. If you made it to numbers, right? Some of us were like, I'm going to pray this year. And you get in and for a few days, you're praying. And then eventually you're sitting there going like, I just feel like my words are bouncing off the roof. Do you ever think maybe the enemy is just trying to get you away from endurance so you can actually become an adult in these things? And what happens is we give in and we just stay in Neverland. We just stay in the spiritual immaturity. We just stay back there and we, we make our reasons up because we lack and we dabble. Some of us have gotten to the place, this is your first time to church in months. You're like, hope it doesn't mean me. Yeah, I mean you. I don't know who you are personally, but God does. And some of us have gotten the habit and it's becoming more of a habit in the church that once a month is regular church going. And yet Hebrews is very clear. He says, let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Maybe it's we're, we're avoiding our small group. Maybe it's that we're avoiding church. We don't want the accountability because immaturity doesn't like accountability. And it can't keep consistency up. That's a spiritual Peter Pan syndrome. And I want to call us away from Neverland. I want to call us into engaging the spiritual development together. What was awesome in first service is my mic was freaking out. Something was wrong with the butt pack. We're not sure what still what went on. And I have my brother-in-law sitting in the audience and he goes, and he's seeing, I'm getting frustrated. He's going, how are you doing, Greg? And I know that from him means, I see you're being impatient. You okay? He encouraged me to love and good deeds. I was able to stop, pray for a second, reassess myself. That's what we need for each other all the time. We can't neglect showing up to care about one another. We can't neglect to, to be together because it's more convenient to watch it on a television. Not, not that that's what's going on out there for you guys. But what we need to be able to do is ensure that we are engaged, not just dabbling in our faith. You might be in Neverland if you rely only on celebrity pastors to feed you. This is a, a modern danger, right? I mean, hey, celebrity pastors feeding us, that's a big deal. Only the modern Christians are failing at that one. No, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. If one if says, I follow Paul, and the other says, I follow Apollos, you're not being merely human? What is then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And he's saying, Look, the, the point is, yeah, you can have different teachers, but if that's all you're dependent on, you're not dependent on Christ. The goal here is not to make you a bunch of people dependent upon me so that you can grow spiritually, not dependent upon your favorite spiritual leader on the radio or podcast or whatever. That's not the goal. You need to be able to know how to pick this up, study it for yourself, and know what it means. You need to be a people who understand how to pray. You need to be a people who don't need to be like, like our, our illustration at the beginning, constantly being spoon-fed. And when you don't like it and you don't feel like you're getting fed, we go to a better nursery. Ow, sorry. But really, the goal is not to offend. The goal is to expose. Are we stuck in a spiritual neverland? We didn't even know it. Somewhere back there, we just stopped growing. We just got busy. We just got focused on the things where, honestly, as the author of Hebrews says, we should have been teaching people by now. But we're going back over the elementary things again. And I want to encourage us that we, we, we need to take this seriously. Because the danger is if we don't, we could easily have our faith mixed by our culture. And maybe that's the issue. Your faith might be mixed up. I'm going to give you a few of these indicators that are very common out there right now. That your faith might be mixed up if you, th if you think you know better than the previous generations of Christians. This is the big one to me. I see this all the time. I mean, lots of people who are brand new to the faith and they think, oh, we got it down. We know way better than they did back in those days. Barbarians. There was a whole generation that thought it was dumb for Christians to believe in miracles, though for centuries now, Christians have believed in miracles. And the strange thing is the closer you get to Jesus, the more they believed in miracles. We go, oh, we all know miracles don't happen anymore. They're just dumb, unenlightened, or first century people. <laughs> really? It kind of comes, comes to my mind that they were a lot closer to the situation than we are. How can we be judging this? Oh, but we know what marriage really is now. 
We know what sexuality really is now. We understand what human beings really are as if they have not read the same word and dealt with the same kind of humanity for over 2,000 years. And what we've inherited is a faith that's come to us for 2,000 years. In fact, in my theology class, the first thing they told us is, if you come to something new after 2,000 years of theology, it's most likely you're a heretic. And here's the danger. People go, but Greg, come on. We develop all kinds of new things from the scriptures. We have the ability to have new insights, and I agree we do. And so, but the one they always throw at me is, look at slavery. You know, we had all the slavery, and it took Christianity to become the abolitionists, to stand up and say, this is wrong. People are made in the image of God. We need to do this. And I say, time out. Because there's a whole other crew out there saying, oh, yeah, well, the Bible endorses slavery. Don't you see that? Look at all this information on how to do slavery. And didn't, wasn't the church in the South arguing for slaves? And all of a sudden, I go, whoa, whoa, that's not even the conversation. Do you know how we got to the slavery we have? We had from the slaves enslaving Africans, bringing them across seas. Because we got there because we were sailing the ships and some arrogant ship owners and others said, hey, look, there's some free cheap labor here for our industrial revolution. Let's do something. Do you know prior to that, slaves hadn't been known since the Roman Empire. When the Roman Empire fell, roughly in 1000 AD, something vanished with the disappearance of the Roman Empire, slavery. With the rise of the Christian emperors and the rise of the Christian kings throughout Europe, there were serfs and there was difficulty with lords and things like that, but there were no slaves. Because Christianity abolished slavery when it Ruled. Now, it had its other problems, don't get me wrong, but this is not one. In fact, it was later when along comes people saying, well, we know better than those old barbaric, unenlightened, middle-aged, middle-ages people, those medieval, dark-age people. And the worst form of atrocious slavery rose in the world. This is a constant lie Christians have to watch for, that we know better. We read this Bible better. We've got it more figured out. And if you think that, your faith may be mixed with some, con some secular concepts. Maybe you think that God only cares about parts of our lives. He doesn't care about the Super Bowl. He doesn't care about my HOA. Wish he did. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm going to get in trouble with all of you lovely people who work in HOAs. But no, the, the reality is we, we sit around in a situation, many of us thinking God's only here at church. He only cares about how you act here, and we can argue and fight and yell and scream at each other and treat each other like garbage at home, but when we get to church, oh, we're best friends. God sees what you're doing at home. God knows what you're like in your car. God knows what your business practices are like. God understands what you're doing with your buddies and on that Saturday night or Friday night. God is involved in your life because God dwells in you if you're a Christian, and God is everywhere. It's his creation. He made every human being to represent him. That's why he's ticked when we lie. Why would God be upset that I lie to somebody? Because you just represented God as a liar. You're made as his representative. You're made in his image. Everyone on the planet represents God. And how well have we done? Showing him off to be a murderous, lust-filled, crazy, evil being. Not a good one. I think God has a good reason to be upset with us. Part of that comes from the thought that, you know, I don't really think God cares about this. No, God made everything. He cares about everything. He cares about what he's made and what they make. He's engaged in every aspect of every corner of the world and the universe. No part of it does he look at and not say, that's mine. We just simply steward and manage his stuff. 
We can't just segment God off and just say, oh, that portion over there, the, the Colossians struggled with that one. We'll deal with that as we get through the book, but we struggle with that today. Another one is maybe you think that God just wants us to be happy and healthy. That's God's intention, just for you to be the best you you can be. That's what God longs for you to be. If you just trust Jesus, he will bless you with all the wealth and all of the health and everything that you need. Now, I don't disbelieve that God doesn't want to bless people. I don't think that God doesn't want to see us have financial strength or have a healthy life. I don't think he doesn't want to do that, and I don't think he doesn't bless some people in that way. But the danger is when we think that's all God's about, and suffering comes into your life, and it comes for a long, long, long time, you're going to want to throw Christianity away with it. But that's not what God promised. It's a part of his blessing, but he's also blessed some people with pain. Paul said, take this thing away from me. He had some kind of situation. He's going, God, take this away. He says, no, my, my grace is sufficient for you. This is a blessing to keep you humble. What do you do when God blesses you with suffering to keep you humble? And so sometimes we need to scoot back and say, you know what? It's not just about being healthy. It's not just about being happy. It's about being good. And it's about him and his goals and his directions. And it's about living in his mission and where God is going. It's not about me. In fact, that's the other part, that God just wants us to be nice and not hurt anybody. Because all the general religions teach this, right? We just be nice and don't hurt anybody. And we boil Christianity down to that. Just be nice and don't hurt anybody. Be careful. Is this just simple over the complex? Because the Bible, we love hearing people say, well, God is love. Well, God, God is also just. And God is also burning fire, it says. I don't hear us running around saying that, like, put, put that on your bumper sticker. You know, our God is a flaming fire. It's like, okay, that's kind of freaky. But he says that. You see, there's a, there's a knowledge. Yes, we, do, we need to be kind. That's one of the spiritual blessings. That's one of the fruits that we're supposed to produce. But that's not all. You're also supposed to be loving and patient and kind and gentle and faithful and truthful and just. And sometimes truth and kindness, they don't go real well together, do they? Try it sometime. Try to speak the truth into a situation where they're standing against the truth and trying to be nice, and you know it's going to hurt somebody. Not because you want to intentionally hurt them, but because you want to love them. And sometimes love has to do something that looks like it hurts. Just ask my kids when I tell them they can't do something that they really, really want to. You're not being nice. No, I'm not. You can't do that. That's going to hurt you. It's not always about being nice and not hurting anyone. It's bigger than that. It's not only that. It is that and it's greater. But we can have this mixed into our thinking that that's all it is. It's just filtering in. And finally, maybe it's this one. I think the church is something we buy, not something we are. We come to church and we think, this building, look at this church. It's so nice and it's got cool stuff. And I think that guy's funny. And oh, wow, that, that worship leader is this. And we make all these consumer decisions. And we're not even realizing that this isn't about what you get. This is about what you give. See, the church isn't the buildings. It's not, the, it's not all these chairs. It's not the stuff around you. You're the church. See, God didn't empower the building. God empowered the people. He put a gift in you. He made you to dwell in this world, to bless with this gift so that you're a conduit of his giftedness, not a holder of the giftedness. 
And so he calls us to be those who are giving. The more we give, the more we serve, the more we bless one another, the greater the church grows and cares for one another and matures with each other. But the more it's just about our consumer decisions, whether my kid's getting the best youth experience or whether I'm getting the best preaching or or whether this is good or that is good, we make all the wrong adjudications because if it's all about what I'm getting, there's a big danger that we have turned, we've taken the consumer mentality of the world and plugged it into the church. And that's mixed into our faith. When it's very clear, Scripture over and over and over again says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so just a challenge that this is, this is just kind of an exposure. I'm just trying to turn light on as we begin this series because what I want to call us out of is away from Neverland, away from these dangerous mixed beliefs into something greater. You may be going like, wow, I kind of believe some of those things, Greg. What do I do? We grow up. Olive Branch, we intend to be a people that grow up and not let people stay babies. You don't need to be a baby. You don't need, who wants to stay a baby? You really want somebody plugging a Bible, bottle in your mouth the rest of your life? I mean, you babies don't even get to go where they want to go. You got to pick them up. You're coming with me. I don't want to go that way. Too bad you're a baby. <laughs> Why are you crying, baby? Because my diaper's dirty. You really want somebody wiping up your diaper? Spiritually speaking? Just asking. We need to grow up. It's time to get out of Neverland. We don't have to stay stuck here. Such an opportunity, more so than ever in our society, to begin to grow and develop spiritually with the tools that are delivered, with the teaching that's available, and the opportunity for you to get into the Word of God. You have it in all kinds of languages. You got it in the Greek, you got it in the English, you got 7,000 versions in the English. Hey, you have no reason that we couldn't do this. And what I want to encourage you is that you can. Notice how Paul starts. Look one more time down in the book of Colossians. He begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, God sent them this letter by somebody who's going to point back to Christ. By the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Not to the idiots. Not to you dumb guys stuck in Neverland. No, he's saying, no, here's who you are in Christ. You are saints. You are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who you are in Christ. We do not have to stay immature. He is in you to dwell in you, to mature you, to empower you. And so there are some things that we want to challenge you to move through. We're going to do a series. We're going to do it in about three weeks. We're going to be launching a, um, this thing called reveal. And it's uh, the reveal is a, is a kind is it's a survey. That's the word I'm looking for. And it's a survey. It's a long survey. And you're going to look at it and go, I don't really want to do this. It's 100 questions long. But what it's going to help us do, we're making all of our staff do it, we're making all of our leadership do it, is because we want to get a, a baseline on where we're at spiritually. And we can, this, this reveal thing helps us identify where do we need to grow? How do we need to help each other begin to develop in what areas of our, of our walk? And so we're, going to, we're aiming for 350 people to take this. We hope everybody takes it. And it's going to take a little bit of time, but it will help us get a baseline. And you don't want just the staff taking it because that won't look good. I don't know if it'll look great or it'll look bad. I'd be really curious. But the, uh, we want everybody taking this if you can. And that's just letting you know it's coming, so in a few weeks. But then what we're going to be calling ourselves to is let's get out of Neverland. Let's leave. Let's get moving. Let's grow. Let's take this opportunity to seize it and grow. Maybe you need a mentor. Maybe you need somebody to come alongside you and and teach you these basics and build you up and grow you forward. Maybe it's not that. Maybe what you need is you need to mentor somebody. And you may be 25 
but you've been a Christian all your life and you know the faith and you've done the studies, you've been mentored, and you meet some guy who's 85 and he's a brand new baby Christian, guess what? You're the older Christian, go train the younger Christian. That may seem weird, but that's how it works in the spiritual life. And we need to be able to lift each other up and we need to do this. Older ladies, older women, train the younger. And I believe that's spiritual. Older men, train the younger. And that's spiritual. Some of you are older and it's just, we just need to do this. Some of you just need to take the first step and get baptized and stop making all the silly excuses why you can't. It's just the point. It's like this is the next milestone. I don't know why Jesus said to do this, you know, to do this right away. I mean, it makes sense with the symbolism and everything, but he could have chose something else. But this is what Jesus said. This is what you do. Let's do it. So maybe it's time to go like, ah, I'm stuck here, and maybe I just need to do what Jesus says because he knows better than me. Maybe it's time to become a member and, and connect with your church and say, I'm in. Let's do this. Let's engage. Maybe one of these milestones is going to be the thing that helps you begin to grow. Maybe it's as simple as getting into a small group, committing this year to being at church, going through the studies together, pressing in deeper, learning how to study your Bible on your own. All these things are important, and it's all a piece of what we do. And I want to encourage you guys that this is where we want to go. And I hope that you'll move forward. I hope we'll take this opportunity and seize it and step out. But let's face it, some of us, we are. We're stuck in Neverland, and we never intended to be so. So I want to encourage you guys this morning that we could begin to do that. So if you bow your heads with me, I just want to take a minute to pray. What I want to do is, right, if you're there right now, and you're in that place where you're saying, you know, I'm stuck. I'm starting in Neverland. And I'm not a baby Christian. I've been here a long time, but I need to grow up. Right now, in, in this moment, I want to take a silent moment for you to just deal with God. And right here in this room, just lift your heart up to God and tell him, God, I know that I am just stuck in Neverland. Would you please help me to grow? Show me how to get moving. And you know, if that's you this morning, just as a sign of confession so that we can be together in this, I just ask that you just put your hand up. You're saying, yeah, that's me. You're just being real with me. You're being real with God. And I'm just going to pray over you. It's not a shameful thing. This is just how life works sometimes. And God, I just lift up those who have got their hands up. We're so willing to be honest and confess that they have just been stuck back there at the beginning of their faith. I pray that you would bless them, grow them, empower them to begin not just to not just to take the simple, but to begin to go deeper, to begin to live it out, to be fruitful in their lives. I pray that you'd bless them in that way. But, and I ask this in Jesus' name. But one more thing before we, we finish here. And that is some of you have been playing church. You've been coming. You've been showing up. You've been listening. But you have yet to have stepped across the line. Maybe you've even been hiding in the church. It's time for you to see that Jesus Christ has borne your sins. He's died on that cross. He rose from the dead to give you life. What does that mean? It means that he conquered your sin so that you could have access to God. And he conquered death so that the relationship with God would never end again. And that he offers it to you freely by his grace so that everyone, no matter where you've been in your life, can receive it. It's a wide open option for you. And all you need to do is receive that his kingdom has come. Receive what he has given to you and you're right with God and you have that life. And maybe that's where you need to begin today. 
Not play games, not hide behind some fake spirituality, but time to receive God's gift. If that's you, I'll give you that chance to do that right now. It just simply starts by just saying, God, I want to receive your gift. I trust that you've conquered my sins. I trust that you have conquered death. And I ask that you'd begin to open my heart to you and reunite me with you. Would you come into my life? Would you lead me from here? You know, if you're praying that prayer or praying something like it and receiving, would you just let me know today? Would you just put your hand up? You're saying, that's me. And I want to pray over you as well this morning. And you're just saying, God, that's what I needed. Amen. God, I pray over those who have their hands up right now. I ask that you'd bless them with the presence of your spirit. I pray that you would overwhelm them so they would know you. God, that their guilt and the feelings of shame would vanish as they press into you, as they see you in your word and in life, and help them to now begin to grow as they've been born into your kingdom. I pray you bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.